Uh, we have had some bad roads so far this winter driving system, but not like normal. We haven't had the bitter cold. We haven't had a ton of major snow events. Once again, there's there's no doubt we've had snow, we've had freezing rain, we've had slippery spots, we've had accidents, etc. But uh, snow on the way, the cold's coming in, and we thought we'd visit with our friend Mike Hansen, the director of the Minnesota Office Traffic Safety, with the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. And Mike, Happy New Year and good to visit with you again. And a happy new year to you too, Steve, and thanks for having me on again. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to winter driving safety, uh, we've talked for a number of years here on the radio. Um, Slow down. Let's just start there. Slow down. I I like how you're starting this out because that is the the basics. That is the root of all problems that occur when we do uh, get into our slippery season um, because, you know, we're just too used to those dry roads. And, you know, you were talking, you know, this has been a really mild winter with just little shots here and there of those challenging road conditions. And then, and that's actually setting us up for, for really some significant challenges because we just haven't had the chance to get used to those slippery conditions yet because uh, they're slippery, then it goes away and it's nice for a week and then it comes back again. And so we need to really kind of change our mindset, especially looking at the forecast coming up. Yeah, and a week ago I was in uh, Sioux Falls visiting the in-laws and heard reports that that things got a little dicey here on Twin Cities Roads last Saturday night. We had some snow come in, and um, it it can get slick in a hurry. And then you, you couple that with with cold temps and uh when when those surfaces get extremely cold uh it goes back to the old thing we've heard over and over again chemicals don't work as well so uh any snow with with the really cold stuff looks like it's coming into uh much of the area end of the week that's problems you are exactly right and you know the other challenge that we've had is you know that temperature has been hanging right around that 30 degree 32 degree point, you know, where it drops down there a little bit, you know, and then everything frosts up or those bridges and those overpasses really get slippery, you know, then it warms up and, you know, then we just have wet roads after that. Uh, but yeah, when we talk about that extreme cold, you know, those chemicals, the colder it gets, the, the harder it is for them to do their job. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, they just have to wait for some, some warmth to get them to kick in. So, you know, if there's precipitation and that cold weather, um, we know we're in for an extended period of challenging driving conditions. Yeah, and one of the things I think motorists notice is the big trucks with four-wheel drive, the large SUVs with four-wheel drive, really motoring around in, in bad road conditions. But it, it all gets back to one thing, and I've been saying this for years. And, and by the way, I, I, I do have a four-wheel drive vehicle now. But four-wheel drive has nothing to do with stopping. Uh, and and that, that gets back to the old thing. All vehicles, whether you have four-wheel drive or not, you got to slow down. You know, that, that that's a great point. And it's one that I, I, I reinforce time and time and time again. Four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive does not mean four-wheel stop or all-wheel stop when it gets slippery because that coefficient of friction is the exact same on every one of those tires, irregardless of whether it has power or not, when you're trying to dump power um, and slow down. And so, yeah, don't become over-reliant on that four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive, or those traction control features that many of our modern cars have. 
Um, you still have to drive according to the conditions and be prepared for anything to happen um, around you so that you can react, you can avoid it, and if necessary, uh, slow down and, and get yourself out of a bad spot. I'm, I'm glad you brought up tires. We don't think about it, but that, that's the only thing that meets the roads. What, the, what does the law say about tires? If Obviously, if you're running around on, on, on bald or worn tires, that is a bad deal, particularly in the winter months. But, but what does the law say? And can law enforcement check the condition of your tires? Oh, certainly. And it's been a while since I've looked at that one. So I'd, I'd hate to okay. pick the exact number of, of 64 of an inch that you need. Um, but really, the, the, the way that you want to look at that is you want to have adequate treads so that it channels the moisture or it channels um, the, the snow or the precipitation away from that tire tread. And, you know, when you have very little tread left, the tire just cannot do that. Tire technology has come a tremendous uh, way in the last 20 or 30 years. I think you and I both remember uh, driving on the old bias ply uh, tires that you know, when it got cold, you know, they got flat spots on them. Um, and they were notorious for losing pressure and, and just not serving uh, a, a very good uh, or very safe function. So, you know, we need to maintain the proper tire pressure. Um, and when it gets cold, that can be a challenge. Um, but we also have to make sure that we have the best tire that we can afford on those cars. And I know tires are not cheap, and we want to make them <clears throat> last a long time. But you have to remember, those four tires, they all have a, a, a footprint on the road about the size of your hand. And that is all that is keeping you in contact with the road. And that is what you use to steer and what you use to brake and what you use to accelerate. And so you want to have good, the best tires you can afford on that car especially in these challenging uh, winter seasons. Mike Hansen joining us, the director of the Office of Traffic Safety with the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. And by the way, if you want to send us a text, you're welcome to 651-461-9226 if you have a question about the rules of the road. One thing I did want to get into again is a reminder, uh, emergency vehicles on the side of the road, tow trucks, stranded motorists, etc. What does the law say specifically? Uh, clearly, uh, we we need to move over. But but what does this law say specifically about law enforcement or any other first responder, tow truck drivers, etc. on the side of the roadway? And, and that this is a great uh, topic to to discuss. And and I'm even going to point out that the law was expanded uh, during the last session a bit more. So not only you know do we want to make sure that we are giving those first responders the safe room to work, um, but really the move-over law now applies to uh, even stalled vehicles. And so it, the basics of it is if you can move over, do move over. Um, so if traffic allows it, you need to give that extra lane or even extra two lanes to those responders who are trying to take care of something that took place on the side of the road or the stranded uh, vehicle that has broken down or whatever on the side of the road. Now, if traffic conditions don't allow you to move over, above all else, it's going to go back to our core messaging that we started with. Slow down, because you cannot control your car um, if you have too much speed. And so, you know, it, it, how much do you need to dump? Well, you need to dump as much speed as it is to allow you to maintain control of that car no matter what happens. Because the last thing you want to do is make a bad situation worse by hitting one of the responders or one of the involved vehicles on the side of the road. Um, Mike, when when we talk about speed, and we brought this up even in the summer months, and 
it, it, it really started to rear its ugly head during COVID. Do, do we have any new numbers in what we're seeing with excessive speed generally on our freeways and highways around the state of Minnesota? Because I, I, I spend a fair amount of time on the road, not, not as much as I used to with my long commute. But, boy, there, there's still a lot of people driving really fast. You are exactly right. Um, you know, we are seeing a slight decline in the number of speed-attributed fatalities that are taking place. Um, and, you know, we're seeing some of those speeds come, this average speeds come down a little bit. But the, the ones that really are concerning and are really dangerous are those extreme speeds, as you refer to. And these are 20, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour over the speed mm. limit, or more than that in some cases. Um, and talking to my law enforcement partners at the state patrol and, and with other agencies across the state, they're still encountering these things on a weekly, if not a daily basis, where, where somebody is going well over 100 miles an hour. And the scary part of it is during our just concluded you know, extra enforcement campaign where we were all focused on impaired driving, the number of impaired drivers uh, who are traveling at 90, 100, 110, 115 miles an hour out there, it's astounding. Um, so, you know, when you put those two things together, that is absolutely the recipe uh, for a fatality crash to occur. And so we're working hard. We're, we've got a couple of programs that we're going to be rolling out uh, going into 2024 and through the entire summer next year where we're going to be putting a lot of resources and a lot of extra emphasis on trying to bring some of these speeds back under control. Uh, Mike, you brought up impaired driving, and this has been a challenge. You know, uh, driving while intoxicated or drunk driving was and and continues to be uh, an important uh, goal for law enforcement to get that down to zero impaired drivers. Uh, using other substances, whether it's prescription drugs, illicit drugs, marijuana now, etc., and giving law enforcement the tools in the field to determine whether or not a driver is impaired. You're exactly right. Um, you know, impaired driving, we've made progress when it comes to alcohol. When I think about when I got into law enforcement in the, uh, the early to mid-1980s, you know, uh, at over half of our fatalities involved an alcohol-impaired driver. And, you know, as we got into the 1990s and so forth, you know, we were arresting over 40,000 people a year for impaired driving in Minnesota. You know, the fatality statistics now are right around 30% involving an alcohol-impaired driver. And the overall number of impaired driving arrests, I think I just saw the numbers for 2023, was just over 27,000. So, you know, that's higher than it's been. Um, But... um, it's, it's still lower than what we've seen historically. What we really see as some dark clouds on the horizon are the number of drug-impaired drivers. And it's not just cannabis. There's a number of other things that, that, that officers are seeing out there. But if we look at the current five-year period and compare it with the previous five-year period, the number of drug-impaired driving arrests is up 96%. And so that is something, you know, drug-impaired driving is not something that's new on Minnesota roads, but it is something that is becoming more common and more frequent. And so we're working hard to figure out exactly what do we need to do to educate potential users of whatever it is, because impaired is impaired. And then how do we develop the countermeasures to help them make better decisions so that they don't get behind the wheel? Yeah, and uh, obviously detection, 
but a, a, a big part of these campaigns and a big part of you know the the drunk driving campaigns was educate 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 and then of course ratchet up penalties etc et sometimes the the only way people will be convinced otherwise is is with with severe penalties Right. And, you know, we have three tenets that we really kind of incorporate into any of our extra enforcement campaigns. First of all, we tell everybody what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. Okay. For instance, the holiday impaired driving campaign statistics and data clearly shows us that impaired incidents go up during that time period. So that's why we focus on it. And we put a great deal of effort in telling everybody starting the Wednesday before Thanksgiving until New Year's Day, we are going to have a lot of extra enforcement out there. We do that enforcement, and then the third step of this is to come back and to report what we did. And we're working on compiling that for the impaired campaign right now. So, you know, we want to raise the consciousness, raise the awareness, and and help people understand why we are, are out there with all these extra resources and what we're trying to accomplish. And they can all be part of the solution by making better decisions when they get behind the wheel. Quick break. We're going to come back. Uh, Mike Hansen, Director of the Office of Traffic Safety with the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Uh, we're going to come back and, and talk more. Um, and we're, we're going to get a bit into pedestrian safety because uh, every now and then in the news, there's a tragedy where a pedestrian was struck by a motorist. What do the laws say uh, about uh, what you should do uh, in and around crosswalks and when uh, pedestrians are are near or trying to get across a various roadway. We'll get into that with Mike in, in more detail in a moment. Quick break here on News Talk, E3OWCCO. We continue with Mike Hansen, the Director of the Office of Traffic Safety with the Minnesota Department of public safety and Mike's been good enough to join us from time to time over the years and talk about what's going on on the roadways and once again uh, we, we, we got a lot of uh, winter driving ahead of us even though it's been a relatively quiet autumn and start to winter the weather's going to get cold and certainly uh, there, there's snow here and there in the forecast and uh, some some parts of the area they partic- particularly central and northern Minnesota getting some snow so Take it easy on the roadways and slow down. Uh, Mike, there was a study that came out, and we don't expect you to comment on it, but it was put out by a personal injury uh, law firm down in Florida, and it talked about uh, the the challenges pedestrians face uh, around our roadways and in crosswalks, etc. And you haven't had a chance to review the data in their study, but nevertheless, it does bring up an important topic, and that is uh, the rights of pedestrians or people who ride bikes uh, trying to cross or along our roadways, etc. And we wanted to get your comments on, you know, what it, what is a very dangerous combination. Someone trying to cross the road in a crosswalk. Uh, it's not a fair fight with an automobile or a truck. That's for sure. What does the law say about the right of way for pedestrians on our roadways in the state? Yeah, you're right. And this is a very timely topic. Uh, As a matter of fact, the first fatality of 2024 was a pedestrian fatality in Minnesota. Um, And yeah, the study that you you referred to, I did take a look at it, but we haven't been able to replicate the the data in our research section. But really, the, the law is very simple for pedestrians and for drivers. If a pedestrian is crossing a road at either at a at an intersection, 
that may have a pedestrian crosswalk or it may not. But if the pedestrian is crossing at a marked intersection, the driver of a vehicle must yield to the pedestrian, period. The pedestrian has the right of way if they're crossing at an intersection. Now, if the pedestrian is crossing, you know, mid-street at someplace not uh, at an intersection and not at a designated um, mid-street crosswalk, then they must yield to the car. And so it's kind of a two-way street. But you're right. The vulnerable road users out there, this is a big focus of right now because with the pandemic, we just we saw huge increases that have really sustained in the number of walkers and joggers and bikers and others who are out there um, using the transportation system in, in non-traditional ways. And so we really want to make sure that we're focusing our safety approaches on protecting those vulnerable road users because they, they really have, have nothing to protect them against that three, four, five thousand pound vehicle that's barreling down the road. Yeah, and it, it gets to winter driving conditions, especially on, on streets or secondary roads. Um, stopping distances are different, etc. And motorists have that responsibility to keep an eye out for those, those people on bikes and, and those people on foot. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the other challenge that we have in Minnesota is, you know, we're in the low light period. And, you know, many people like to walk either before work early in the morning or after work when they come home, and it's dark. And this is, again, where it becomes kind of a two-way street. Um, Pedestrians can really protect themselves and help themselves by wearing highly reflective, even illuminated clothing items. Um, You know, I walk my dogs. I have lighted leashes, I have lighted blinking collars, I wear a reflective vest and a headlamp and a flashing red light to the rear. And pedestrians also need to remember that they're required to walk on the left side of the roadway. So you're walking into or facing traffic so you can see what's coming. Um, And uh, bikes, on the other hand, they follow the same rules of the road as a, a vehicle driver does. So, but drivers also have to make sure that your headlights are clean, make sure that your windshields are clean, and that you are doing everything that you can to make sure that you can see these potential hazards on roadside. And so it's, it's all about see and being seen, um, and that, it's that simple. Yeah, and finally, Mike, this, this is where being a distracted driver can be so deadly, being oh, on a and, device, not paying attention. You're exactly right. And, and you know, we'll go back. I'm going to kind of hit on what we started with, with speed again. You know, somebody thinks 5 or 7 or 10 miles an hour over the speed limit doesn't really make a big difference. Well, you know what? For a pedestrian, it does. Because the difference between survivability when a pedestrian is hit at 25 miles an hour as opposed to what happens at 35 miles an hour um, is substantial. At 25 miles an hour, 8 or 9 of those pedestrians out of 10 will live. At 35 or 40 miles an hour, um, uh, eight or nine of those are going to be fatally injured. And so a little bit of speed makes a huge difference, um, even in our lower speed urban areas when it comes to those pedestrian collisions. Well, Mike, it's always good to visit with you. Always great advice, important reminders. We all share uh, the, the roads and we want to make sure the roads are as safe as we can make them. You bet. And I always enjoy being uh, on your show, Steve. You have uh, great questions, and I enjoy our conversations. Yeah. Well, Mike, hopefully we can do it again down the road. All right. That sounds good, sir. You have a good night and a great rest of the new year. 
There he is, Mike Hansen, Director of the Office of Traffic Safety from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. And uh, the, the, the phrase of the day, slow down, uh, 5.30. We'll have an update on the weather. It's going to get chilly. We'll have all the details coming up. And then Stephen Clark joins us. He covers space flight for Ars Technica. There is a lot going on. As always, and we'll get the latest from Stephen here on News Talk, E3OWCCO. It is always fun to talk space and space flight with Stephen Clark from Ars Technica and uh, the website arstechnica.com. Stephen, good to visit with you. Uh, here we are in 24, and there's a lot going on and a lot to get into. Yeah, Happy New Year, Steve. Happy to join you again. Yeah, it, typically we talk a lot about SpaceX and why not, but I, I want to start with, with something just a little bit different, and that is United Launch Alliance and its Vulcan rocket is getting ready to fly. Yes, uh, yes it is, Steve. Uh, on Monday morning, very early, uh, shortly after midnight, uh, we'll see the launch, hopefully weather permitting, of the first Vulcan rocket, and this is a brand-new uh, launch vehicle that's been developed by uh, this company, United Launch Alliance, and if your listeners aren't familiar, they're uh, kind of the uh, the mainstay in the launch industry. They are ULA is a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed Martin, two big defense aerospace industry uh, c- uh, competitors, came together and and formed ULA about 15, 17 years ago now. And they've been flying the Atlas and Delta rockets. And if any of your listeners are familiar with space history, you'll know the Atlas rocket has a long a history dating back to the late 1950s, the Delta almost as long uh, back to the 60s. But those rockets are antiquated and are, are being phased out now uh, in favor of this new rocket, the Vulcan. And this is kind of uh, ULA's answer to the comp- uh, competition that they're seeing from SpaceX. SpaceX has been dominant in the U.S. launch, launch industry now for a decade almost at this point. And uh, ULA has been working on this rocket for about the same period of time, about 10 years to get it to the launch pad, and uh, it will be significantly less expensive than their Atlas and Delta rockets. However, uh, still not quite as as uh, affordable, low cost as the Falcon 9, but uh, it will be more competitive for sure. But the first launch, a lot riding on that Monday morning, uh, needs to go successful uh, to get uh, the Vulcan rocket into service. Yeah, and, and Stephen, the reliability of these ULA rockets was was kind of the industry standard, and that's why they were getting the big, important payloads that, you know, absolutely positively had to get on orbit safely. Exactly. So ULA, uh, for their entire history, even before the formation, Boeing and Lockheed Martin with their different rocket divisions have launched uh, all the rovers that have gone to Mars. They've launched almost all the GPS satellites that are connecting connecting to your phone uh, to tell you, give you directions around town. Uh, the vast majority of those satellites launched on ULA rockets as well. Uh, so very critical, uh, highly uh, expensive pieces of infrastructure. Uh, High-priority national science missions have all been launched on ULA rockets. And ULA has a 100% success record uh, since their formation back in uh, 2006, and uh, no other company can can claim that. Now, SpaceX has launched a lot more than than uh, ULA in that period of time. Uh, they did have uh, one or two failures early on of their Falcon 9 rocket, uh, 
uh, SpaceX, since uh, 2016, they've launched uh, more than 200 times consecutive successfully. So really these two companies, SpaceX and ULA, are about on par in reliability. And and ULA is hoping that the Vulcan will be uh, just as reliable but less expensive. Stephen Clark joining us, Ars Technica, on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Uh, are any of the components reusable? That That's one of the things SpaceX was able to do is, is the Falcon 9, that first stage, is reusable. They've been able to bring it safely back. They did have a mishap in the high seas where a booster tipped over and, and, and was damaged and for all practical purposes destroyed, but... Uh, what what about the new Vulcan rocket, or is there a plan to make it reusable at some point? So out of the gate, the Vulcan will not be reusable. It will be fully expendable, and that's kind of, uh, you know, for those of us in the space industry, a lot of the trend uh, led by SpaceX, but a lot of other companies, a lot of new startups trying to get into the launch business have been going after reusability. And uh, ULA does have a longer-term roadmap to do that. They want to start recovering uh, the engines of the Vulcan rocket, uh, the two main engines, they want to start recovering those engine pods, maybe in a few years' time to reuse them, uh, but no plans to reuse the entire booster stage or any other elements of the rocket as SpaceX does. So that you know uh, brings into question what's the long-term viability of Vulcan. I think uh, in short to midterm, it does have a place in the market because uh, for a couple of reasons, the uh, military, the Defense Department here in the United States, uh, they have a policy, uh, for good reason, I think, to want to have two independent launch companies to be able to get these critical spy satellites, GPS satellites, uh, satellites that would go up uh, to uh, ensure communications between military commanders in the event of a nuclear war. These are very highly sophisticated satellites. They want two different companies, two different independent rockets to be able to launch those. And uh, right now, SpaceX is one of them. ULA is one of them. Uh, there are no other companies in the next few years that will have a rocket fully certified to be able to do that work. So I think uh, ULA is counting on, and they do have contracts with the military to launch these uh, satellites on Vulcan once, it, once it's uh, proven to be a successful vehicle. So uh, short to midterm, I think Vulcan is a viable uh, rocket for ULA, and the company is counting on it being successful. Uh Given their track record, I have no doubts it will be successful in the end uh, from a technical perspective. But we'll see in you know 10 years if we're still sitting here talking about Vulcan or if ULA has uh, changed their tune and, and going more after reusability in, in a stronger sense. Yeah, and you, you, you see SpaceX getting important work as well with their Falcon 9 and, and heavy with uh, bigger payloads. But ultimately... SpaceX and their goal is is to do everything with Starship because of what what they hope to be just in incredible reliability and 100% reusability that would drive costs to the point where it it's hard to imagine anybody with disposable systems being able to compete. You're you're right and and if you want to really want to um bullet down, it, the Vulcan is basically uh, United Launch Alliance's answer to the Falcon 9. It's uh, it's more on par with the Falcon 9 on price, uh, uh, not exactly the same price. It's still more expensive than the Falcon 9, uh, but we've seen contracts from the military that have gone to SpaceX for uh, their launch services, gone to ULA for Vulcan rockets. They're pretty similar, and 
Uh, ULA has brought down the price of their launches maybe from an average of uh, $150 million, which is uh, which is quite a bit, obviously, down to below $100 million, uh, with the Vulcan. Uh, but SpaceX is still in the $60 million ballpark uh, per launch right now uh, when they sell their launch services on the commercial market. So, yeah, the Vulcan is the is the answer to Falcon 9, which is the current market leader. But as you mentioned, the Starship, a fully reusable rocket, Falcon 9 is the current rocket SpaceX is flying is partially reusable. Uh, so there's really no company that has a plan and answer to Starship right now. Uh, and once Starship is is flying at a, at a higher rate and flying successfully, um, it's really hard to see how any uh, company – uh, can compete in the heavy lift launch market uh, with Starship. There's just no plan that any company has a viable plan right now to respond to that. Yeah, and, and Stephen, back to Starship, are we edging closer to that third test flight where they actually hope to get the Starship vehicle in orbit and land it near Hawaii? It wouldn't be a full orbit, but uh, travel around the Earth, uh, from Texas and come down near Hawaii. Are we closing in on that third launch? I think we're getting a lot closer, Steve. Uh, over the holidays, we saw SpaceX test fire, uh, both the first stage and second stage of the next Starship rocket. So those have been test fired, and uh, those tests all look to be completed successfully. So right now the teams down in Texas are putting the finishing touches on the booster, the first stage, and the upper stage, uh, in the hangar, and uh, I think in a matter of weeks, uh, probably later this month, they will be finished with that and be ready to fully stack the uh, Starship on its launch pad in preparation for uh, this third flight, the next test flight. And then it will be coming down to uh, the Federal Aviation Administration uh, reviewing SpaceX's investigation of, of what went wrong on the previous flight and issuing a new launch license. I think though that took, uh, I think, Seven months uh, between flight one and two of Starship. It won't be that long this time. I think it'll be more along the lines of three months, so or four months. And the last launch was in November. So I, I think I told you last time I was talking to you, Steve. I would anticipate the launch happening perhaps in February. I'm going to stick by that at this point. Yeah, and it, it is important for NASA to get this thing going. Uh, it is important uh, for SpaceX to get this system up and running and continue to test and continue to build on the reliability because ultimately, as we've mentioned before, this is a key component to landing humans back on the moon. You're, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, SpaceX had some uh, complaints about how long it took the uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to uh, complete their safety review after their first uh, test flight, after SpaceX's first Starship test flight. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons is, you know, another government agency, NASA, is relying on the Starship to be flying and flying often in order to uh, land uh, humans on the moon on the Artemis program later this decade. And uh, so... There's a lot of uh, a lot of urgency to get Starship flying successfully in the government and in the private sector with SpaceX. So I think uh, we're going to see a faster cadence of these launches uh, this year, even if the next launch doesn't uh, go uh, fully successfully, as long as it doesn't blow up the launch pad, which is always the which was the big fear of SpaceX after the before the first flight. I think they'll be flying every couple of months this year. Um, 
Very exciting stuff. And before we run out of time, I want to point people to an article you did at Ars Technica. And that is uh, the headline, Elon Musk spaceship, or SpaceX needs to build starships as often as Boeing builds 737, a workhorse in the commercial aviation industry. I, I, I thought it was fascinating. To, to get done what they hope to get done and ultimately build a settlement on Mars, that, that seems about right. They're, they're going to need to be a lot of ships and a lot of launches to do it. Yeah, each one of these Starship, so the Starship is fully reusable, first of all, that's the premise. And then each of these Starships can carry 100, 150 tons of payload into orbit. Uh, and you need millions of tons of equipment to go to Mars to build a settlement on Mars. And, and uh, Elon himself, Elon Musk himself, has said that they need to build uh, one to 300 um, Starships per year. They need to ramp up that cadence or the build cadence to one to 300 uh, over the next 30 years or so to achieve his lifelong ambition of uh, building a settlement on Mars. And that's about the same number of uh, 737s, uh, the workhorse of the aviation fleet, as you said, that Boeing has built per year over the last 30 years. So we're talking a you know, huge scale uh, of, of industrial production, of launch capability that SpaceX envisions with Starship. And in the nearer term, to land on the moon, to land, use the Starship to land on the moon the way NASA and SpaceX want to use it, uh, perhaps later this decade. Uh, just uh, my assessment is that Starship will need to be flying uh, when you include the refueling missions that are necessary, the propellant uh, depots, uh, all of the certification test flights. Uh, the Starship will basically need to be flying as often as SpaceX flies the Falcon 9 in order to make that moon landing possible. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Stephen, appreciate your work as always. The website, com. Good to visit with you, and a happy new year again. Happy new year. Thank you. There he is, Stephen Clark, uh, joining us uh, here on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Quick break. We'll come back. Scoreboard. Good news. Uh, the Minnesota Professional Women's Hockey League team won their home opener in front of a big crowd at the X. We'll have that and some other scores here on News Talk. A3O-WCCO. Big day in St. Paul, XL Energy Center. Professional Women's Hockey League, home opener, Minnesota, Montreal. Minnesota wins at 3-0. Grace Zumwinkle, the hat trick. Andover's Maddie Rooney, the shutout win. Minnesota now 2-0, 13,000-plus in the building today. That is a professional women's hockey record. Great stuff. Over at the U, Golden Go for women. They sweep Connecticut with a 3-1 victory today at Ritter Arena. They beat the Huskies 5-3 on Friday. Golden Go for men, they go at it uh, with Colorado College at 3M Arena at Mariucci on Sunday and Monday, players back from the World Juniors, where Team USA won the gold medal. By the way, World Juniors coming here in 2026. Uh, the Wild, they're in Columbus tonight. They are reeling. They're in a tailspin. They are banged up. ton of injuries. Not good news for the Wild right now. More adversity. Uh, quick note, Timberwolves on the road at Dallas tomorrow night. They blew out Houston last night to break a two-game losing streak. Go for men's hoops. Uh, they will be at Maryland tomorrow afternoon, 4.30 on BTN. Go for women's hoops 
at Michigan Tuesday at 7 on BTN. All right, we got NFL action. Uh, Jonathan Lowe, we got some college hoops today. What do you got? Oh, yeah. It's time. It's week 18, (laughs) folks. We are ready to go. And week 18 in the NFL is underway. A big game in the Delmarva Peninsula. Baltimore and Pittsburgh, the Steelers need to win and need help tomorrow to get into the playoffs. They just completed a long touchdown pass to Deontay Johnson from Mason Rudolph and have a 14-7 lead early in the fourth quarter. Baltimore driving at midfield to try to get the tying score. Later tonight, it will be Houston taking on Indianapolis from central Indiana. It will be a winner-is-in scenario. The winner is in the playoffs, still alive for the division title. The loser is out and into the offseason. Tomorrow's games, we'll go over those quickly. Atlanta taking on New Orleans. Both of those teams need a Tampa Bay loss to stay alive for the NFC South title. Uh, the Saints are also alive for a wild card berth. Uh, Baltimore, I'm sorry, Cincinnati will host Cleveland. Cleveland is in as the five seed in the AFC. Cincinnati is done for the season. Tennessee hosts Jacksonville. Jacksonville needs to win tomorrow to clinch the AFC South. If they don't win, they still have a shot, I believe, at a wild card spot, but they're going to need a little bit of help. The Minnesota Vikings are alive, folks. I don't know how they're alive, but they are alive. They need a win tomorrow over Detroit at Ford Field, plus a Green Bay loss, a loss by Seattle, and a loss by either New Orleans, and uh, a win by either. I'm sorry, a win by uh, by Carolina uh, by Arizona over Seattle, and then a win by Carolina over. Yes, I'm sorry, an Atlanta win or a Carolina win. That's what it is. So New Orleans has to lose and Tampa Bay has to lose. So uh, three teams have to lose tomorrow for the Vikings to even get a sniff at the postseason. The uh, toilet bowl tomorrow is going to be Jets versus Patriots. New England (laughs) is 4-12. The Jets are 6-10. Carolina hosting Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay wins. They win the NFC South. Tomorrow uh, afternoon late, it'll be Green Bay taking on Chicago. If Green Bay wins, they are in the playoffs. No help needed. Cowboys taking on the Commanders in Washington. Dallas wins. They win the NFC East and the two-seed in the NFC. Another game, no playoff uh, implications. Denver at Las Vegas. Kansas City has locked up the three-seed in the AFC West. In the AFC, the L.A. Chargers will host them tomorrow as the Chargers are done for the season. The L.A. Rams, they have locked in a wild-card berth. They will take on San Francisco in Central California. Tomorrow, it will be Philadelphia taking on the New York Giants. The Eagles are in, but they need a win and a Dallas loss to get the two seed. Seattle needs to win tomorrow and get a little bit of help. They need a Green Bay loss as the Seahawks take on Arizona. And then tomorrow night, the game of the night, it'll be Buffalo at Miami. The winner wins the AFC East. The loser goes on to the wild card round. Now let's take a quick gander around what's going on in college basketball. That's right, it's hooping it up on a Saturday from the Big Ten today. Iowa defeats Rutgers 86-77. Number 21, Wisconsin, wins over Nebraska 82-78-72. And Ohio State will take on Indiana starting at the top 
of the 7 o'clock hour. That will be in Bloomington. Some top 25 scores, Duke and Notre Dame underway. The Irish lead early, uh, late in the first half anyway, 26-24. It's at the half in Norman, number 11, Oklahoma, leading Iowa State 32-26. to At the half in Knoxville, number 5, Tennessee, leading number 22, Ole Miss, 40-31. to Finals from earlier today, number 7, Marquette, upset at Seton Hall, 78-75. Number 8, North Carolina defeats number 16, Clemson, 65-55. Number 6, Kentucky survives against Florida, 87-85. Number 25, Auburn routes Arkansas, 83-71. Creighton upsets and upends number 23, Providence, 69-60. Kansas with a late goal, uh, field goal late block. They survive against TCU, 83-81. Number 2, Houston wins. And number 18, Baylor right. wins over Oklahoma State. Some bunch of bunch of stuff ready to go, Steve, as we enter this new year. Great stuff, Jonathan. Uh, we want to remind you our sports coverage continues tomorrow with a huddle starring Pete Nigerian and Dave Schwartz from 10 a.m. to noon. Look forward to that. Don't forget Vanita in the morning news. Henry Lake joins. Uh, Dean Mizutani from the Pioneer Press talking Vikings. That's Monday with Vanita on the morning news here on CCO. Have a great Saturday night.